I can't watch Jim Carrey without seeing what an effect he had on my life, without him ever knowing this. It was Jim Carrey that made us leave Los Angeles, or at least that night. I thought, no, this is not me. Go to New York, live in Mariah Carey's house, move to Palm Beach. I've been contracted to write Pilgrim 2 and I have to do it. There are a lot of time constraints, otherwise I have to pay them a lot of money. I'm dreading reading Pilgrim through, I am Pilgrim through again. I am. You know, look, Warren Beatty says it about movies. It's absolutely true. No movie's ever finished. It's just a point at which everybody agrees to give up. And so when Pilgrim came out, it was the fulfilment of a a long-held ambition. And uh, as I said, nothing had prepared me really for its success and certainly nothing had prepared me for having a hole in my life. It's that Chinese proverb, be careful what you wish for. Hello, welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I am Natalie Jameson. And have you had a good Christmas? Shall I just let you know that I said that and it hasn't even been Christmas yet when I've said it? It's one of those, isn't it? And also, but this time of year, you don't know what day it is anyway, do you? No, exactly. And, and you know, we make these podcasts so that hopefully people can just dip into them at any, any time. So time yeah. maybe it's June. Maybe so, yeah. like Christmas is a distant so, past or future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whenever you're listening to this, thanks for joining it today. It's an absolute belter with, uh, I think, well, someone who's intrigued me deeply, um, Terry Hayes. I mean, you'll hear the full story in this book. Uh, he wrote I Am Pilgrim, which sold millions and millions of, of books. And I purposely ignored it because it was like a door wedge. And anything, Natalie will tell you, anything that's over like 500 pages really starts to boil my... 500, try 300. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and this this was about, I think it was, I think my hardback copy was about 780 or 880. or so. It was up there anyway. And then two writers gave me the book as a thank you present for doing some work with them. And I took it on holiday and they said, don't be put off by the length. And so I wasn't. And sure enough, I ripped through it. So I thought, right, where's this, this Terry Hayes guy? I know he's written films. Now he's moved into books. When's the next book coming? And it was something like 10 or 11 years before this one that we're going to talk to you about now came out. And I've got the feeling it was slightly fraught. Did you? What, the time that it the took process, to get another? The process of doing it. Yeah, maybe. He, he, say to us, he says to us at one point, he submitted a million words. Yes. And if we tell you the average book is between 90,000 and 120,000, then you could realise what a surplus there was. Yeah, but, you know, again, he he justifies all those words, as you'll hear. He has very good reasons for doing it. And, you know, as Phil was just saying, Terry Hayes has been a screenwriter. He's written a ton of films that we'll talk about, but also been credited on others that his name's not on. But for example, he was behind, if anybody saw the classic Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman film, uh, Dead Calm. That was one of his. I did. (laughs) Yeah, so I asked him about a particular, if if you've (laughs) ever seen that film, there's a bit in that film that will have stuck with you and has certainly stuck in my brain for many a year. So naturally I had to ask him about that. Um, It does involve a dog. Uh, And... Yeah, just fascinating. He has stories for days uh, about his time in Hollywood and where he chose to live and how he chose to live and how he ended up in Mariah Carey's old house in New York. I say old, like very fancy house. But yeah, I want to kind of I want us to stop wittering on. I just want you to enjoy 
very much what Terry Hayes has to say. And here's Phil with the introduction. Our guest today on Bestsellers has written some of the biggest films that Hollywood's ever put out. You will have sat there and you will have seen them, films like Mad Max 2 and Dead Calm, plus there's a whole load of other movies he's even uncredited as a screenwriter on, which we need to find out about, such as The Amazing Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone. And then about 10 years ago, Terry put out a debut novel called I Am Pilgrim, which set the world on fire. And I'll explain to Terry in a moment how I got my hands on that particular book. Right. <laughs> so as soon as I finished it, I thought, right, what else is there from this guy? And it's taken until now, until we get another piece of work from the incredible Terry Hayes. Uh, and the Year of the Locust is the book. And Terry joins us on bestsellers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. After that uh, lead-in, I should probably leave. Uh, <laughs> quit, quit whilst I'm ahead, but yeah, thank you very much. So I want to tell you a true story, even though we've only just met, and I hope it won't offend you, right? Um, I was initially offered I Am Pilgrim on a press release, and when I found out it was close to 700 pages, mm. I said no just on length, right? Mm -hmm. uh, purely just on length. And then two authors who I knew both gave me a copy of your book oh. right and oh. they said this is the best book we've read this year you've got to read this book and i was going on holiday so i thought okay i'll take it on holiday i mean it put me over on the baggage allowance but it's fine oh. <laughs> so, um anyway i couldn't uh, my wife kept saying to me um are you going to come up to the room now and get ready for dinner I said, yeah two more chapters though i can't i can't <laughs> get my nose out of this book and so all of a sudden the length became irrelevant i mm -hmm. just couldn't get my nose out of the book and that was i am pilgrim yeah. so that's yeah. my relationship with your writing explain well, to you. us first of all why it's taken so long to give your fans another book um yeah yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I uh, get asked it a lot, mostly by my kids. Uh, <laughs> that, well, you know, I, after, after Pilgrim came out and, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, you're off to the races and uh, it had met with some critical and commercial success and that, you know, and so most people would think, well, you know, hey, of plum beer and Skittles and having the time of your life and uh, getting better tables at restaurants and what have Well, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, I wish it had been. I, I found it very depressing, to be perfectly honest. Did you really? Uh, oh, man, yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, what, no, what, no, which part look, of it you know, did you find? Because you sold over a million, didn't you? Oh, just in the UK, it was one and a half million. Yeah. I guess it's about five million. Five million globally. So which aspects were depressing for you? Well, Do you mind me asking got, that? I don't want to no, be triggering. No, 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 no. Look, I mean, you know, most people are sitting at home rolling their eyes saying, oh, my God, what, what, what is wrong with this person? But, no, it, it was an interesting exercise because uh, nothing had prepared me for it. I had um, sat down to write a book and uh, I did the best I could. The, um, but all of my life I'd wanted to be a novelist in a way that was intertwined emotionally with my childhood, you know. So it wasn't just like I, the careers officer at high school told me, oh, you should be a novelist. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. I was born in the UK and uh, I went to Australia as a five-year-old and um, we arrived in Australia with a terrible bushfire season. We happened to be living in a flat above a bank that looked out towards the Blue Mountains, all of which were on fire. And so it was a very uh, confronting 
time for a five-year-old. I, it was just my parents and my old brother. And, um, so I took refuge in reading. I had just learned to read, and I was fortunate that my father was a um, was an avid reader, and uh, was somewhat indiscriminate in my view, but uh, but but uh, uh, widely read. And so I started reading. So I found an escape in that. From Australia was a very weird place then to a five-year-old English kid with red hair and a strange accent. <laughs> And that, so after a few years of reading, of course, I came up with the idea that I would be a writer. And it never left me, it stayed with me forever. So I became a journalist and I got the opportunity to work in movies and make some miniseries, make some more movies, go to Hollywood, make a lot of things. And as you said, rewrite a lot of other people who got the benefit of my work. But anyway, and so when Pilgrim came out, it was the fulfilment of a, a long-held ambition. And as I said, nothing had prepared me really for its success and certainly nothing had prepared me for having a hole in my life. It's that Chinese proverb, be careful what you wish for. And uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. So, uh, so I mean, Terry, was the whole because you'd actually done it? All of this thing yeah. you've strived your whole life for, you've done. So you've yeah. kind of ticked it off. Yeah, what do I do now? Yeah. So I thought, well, I might become a visual artist. I can't paint. I can't draw. Uh, I do have a relatively good eye for creativity. And I thought, well, there's computers now. I can get all these programs on computers. It won't matter that I can't draw. Had I not been a writer, I think I would probably would have been an architect. Um, very interested in all of that. So I thought, well, what do I do now? Last thing I want to do is write another book um, at that stage. And uh, so I found it very, very difficult to to come to terms with with a lot of this chaos of, of having fulfilled an ambition. You know, I, I'm, in my own mind, I think of it as, as somebody who's trained all of their life for an athletic event and actually wins the medal. Not maybe not the gold medal, but they must feel really spent. They must feel like, my God, all of that. And I sort of got there. Maybe not to the highest pinnacle, but I got there. And I knew that I'd written Pilgrim to the best of my ability. I I I I don't I think there's things wrong with the book and you're more than welcome. To ask me about them because I thought a lot about it, but <laughs> the I was, yeah, I thought I don't know. I wrote another book and a complex, exhausting things. Uh, my wife and I had had four children under the age of six, and um, I did make a decision that after Pilgrim came out that I wasn't going to be an absentee father. I, I'd had, you know, I didn't have the happiest childhood, I suppose that's fair to say. And um, I wanted to be there for my kids. So I took quite a bit of time going to watch cricket, watching horse riding lessons, uh, and watching dramatic productions featuring my children, which as any parent will know, you don't think of giving up writing because of that. You think of giving up life. You think if I have to watch a lad one more bloody time <laughs> and my my youngest daughter cannot stop mugging for the audience because she gets them to laugh, I am gonna murder her. And that's so <laughs> so I had a family life. 
I started, I came up with the idea for Locust or an idea for Locust and I sat down to write it. And we were in the fortunate, you know, financial and material sort of position that I didn't have to have a book out every year or two years. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just do it the best I can and uh, make it interesting for myself. I thought, what would make it interesting? I'll make it genre busting. I'll do some things that you don't normally see in spy novels. So that's what I did. I went down the rabbit hole. I met Alice. And nine years later, I came up and uh, here we are. It's great. I think it's actually really refreshing to hear you talking about that, Terry, because I think it's what a lot of people feel when they kind of meet an ambition or they finish a project. There's sort of that feeling of emptiness or what's next or a crap. What do I do now? But to be self-aware about it is, I think, a healthy thing to do. It's just we in society, we don't really talk about it that much. And we don't really talk about, uh, I personally think, although I'm not that good at practicing it, that success is individual to all of us. So, Mm -hmm. but it's really hard to kind of convey that as well. So, um, yeah, and then throw parenthood into the mix. I've got two kids. Phil's got two kids. Um, Yeah, it's, it's a whole mess, but I'm very pleased that you came back to writing and we should have said at the start, actually, we will come back to, I don't want to spoil things for readers of Year of the Locust, but before we finish, so right at the end, I'd like to do a bit of a spoiler session with you on oh. some of the stuff you do in that book. <laughs> I did not see coming. No, well, that's good. That's good. You know, it, look, without being critical uh, uh, of other people, we all have our journey, but it's a pretty dusty genre. Uh, spy thrillers, and many of them rely on things that are completely black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, the good guy is unbelievably good and the bad guy is unbelievably bad. And now we watch the process of killing him. And, and that's fine. And, you know, I, I thought it was very interesting what Phil was saying, uh, that, you know, the books sent him over there weight allowance when he went on his vacation and yes uh, uh, if I read the reviews on Amazon and that you know there's a fair number that say well he needed meditation Jesus he could have told this story in 300 pages (laughs) I've never had a problem with the length of books I really have never had a problem but I've always had a problem when I get bored Mm-hmm. If I I figure if you can keep it interesting, you could write for 1,200 pages. Now, I understand that book reviewers who are getting paid per review are not my best friends. They think, oh, my <laughs> God, I, I get the same amount of money for reading James Patterson as I do this maniac, you know. <laughs> uh, that, now, that's a different category. I'm talking about the public here. What? they're so busy they've got to read 100 books a year or or something. Hey, my job is to keep it interesting, page by page, moment by moment. Try to keep you engaged. Try to surprise you exactly what you said, Natalie, that you don't see this coming. You're thinking, wow, well, I don't know about that. That's crazy. But if I can keep you turning the pages... I have enough confidence in myself that we'll all tie together at the end. If you want to read, I I mean, this is what amazes me. It says uh, on Amazon how many pages there are in the book. Why buy it? 
why if you want to read a 200 page book why would you but god's sake why would you buy my books a lot of people <laughs> say oh you know, people don't want to read long books i don't know i don't think that's true i do know one thing that's true not many people write them Mm-hmm. There's not many people writing epic books, or at least books that are attempting to be epic, for reasons to do with the commercial side of publishing, uh, primarily. So, hey, I don't know whether people want to read them or don't want to read them. All I can say is a lot of people want to read Pilgrim, and uh, God bless them, and uh, gave me the chance to, to well, I wrote a million words for Locust, and it's published at 240,000. I threw out 700. 60,000 words and uh, yeah so do those 760 have they just gone or I mean are they of any use to you in any future life or is that I mean everything's useful right the the Plains Indians uh, had a wonderful thing before the white men arrived when they used to go on the buffalo they'd say consume use every part of the buffalo well I look at a million words I say my god that's a buffalo and, uh, <laughs> we might be having a bit of a feast on part of it, but we'll use all that buffalo one day. Look, there's, there's dozens, scores, maybe over a hundred pages about people surfacing through the through the North Pole ice cap. Uh, oh, you know, Archangel Station. It's Ice Station Zebra. You know, the Alistair McLean book. Um, it's that on steroids. That all went, but. Somewhere along the line, somebody, my kids say, don't ever play Trivial Pursuit with him. Don't ever play. <laughs> because I know I'm going to get a question one day. It says, how thick is the uh, ice pack at the North Pole? Oh, oh, I've got this one, one, haven't I? And that. So, no, nothing. How, how thick is it? I don't know, 14 feet. I, <laughs> I know that submarine finds are very difficult to get through. Mm. I know that. And they have to search for ponds where water has pooled, and that gives them a chance to get through. So that led to a very, very interesting dramatic situation where they're trapped under the ice pack. And that now that sort of did happen with Kursk. And um, that, so, yeah, you know, I, I say to the kids, you know, they, they say, oh, why do I have to read this for school? Why do I have to do biology? I have no interest in biology or what, whatever. I say, you, you can't tell. Mm. I, I mean, I failed science at, well, I didn't quite fail, but it was close enough. I, I, I think I got a charity pass and that, and at high school. Then I go and write a book about viruses. Yeah. I mean, and I'm saying the whole time, God, I wish I'd have paid attention. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I'm reading Science 101 on Google, you know, and that said so nothing's ever wasted. It was just a process. Do I want to go through the process again? No. Who would? No, I don't want to do that. It goes through writing that many words again, but that that's what it became. That was the only way out of the labyrinth. And I was down there, so I thought, well, better keep digging, you know. So what I really enjoyed about Year of the Locust, Terry, was that, which makes sense now hearing about all of those words that you got rid of, is that there is no character, however minor, that doesn't have a backstory. Even oh, if it's just you. a paragraph, you get to know who that person is in, in a really succinct way. So I kind of wonder in the all of those words that you event ended up dismissing, had you fleshed out kind of all of these other characters, like the kind of, you know, 
the people that Kane just passes by or, you know, the meets, the different operators here and there yeah. that you, you just learn a little bit about? Do they all have fu- fuller stories elsewhere? Oh, yeah, yeah. There is a, uh, <laughs> there's a character in it called... I can't even remember his name now because I've changed his name quite a few times. But uh, Frank Corrigan, uh, the uh, yes. the head of human resources, Lucas at, Corrigan. Uh, Lucas, I do beg your pardon. Uh, Lucas Corrigan, who head of human resources at the CIA, and that uh, and um, I I read this thing <laughs> somebody said about somebody else. Well, there's only two two people in the there's only two types of people in the world: those that don't like Corrigan and those who haven't met him yet. And I thought, oh well, there, there there's a succinct character there but of course the trick is to say that's what everybody thinks but he's not like that at all he's really worthy of our admiration so so immediately you see a journey you see i now i have to think up everything about him so independently because all those seven hundred fifty thousand words all had to be researched there's tons of research and independently i'd read about cia station chiefs burning millions and millions of dollars in u.s currency the night that saigon fell to the north vietnamese because they didn't want the cia slush fund falling into the hands of the north vietnamese so i thought that's a great moment We've all seen the helicopters taking off from the roof of the embassy. Even if you're too young, you might have seen this or it's been in movies. We've seen them tipping all the helicopters off the deck of the uh, of the aircraft carriers after they landed because there's no room for them. And that, mm. there goes another few million dollars worth of hardware over the side. Yeah. But I never read this. So I thought, I've got to think up something about Corrigan. Well, if I make him the right age, his father was CIA station chief in Saigon. His father can burn the bloody money. And I thought, oh, this is... So now I start to build it up. And uh, he, he's, he came down from being a 50 pages down to, I don't know, whatever it is, 8 or 10 or 12 in the book. But a very interesting story about him being abandoned. Uh, not abandoned, but not deliberately, but accidentally abandoned. It's such a cinematic that, scene, though, mm. that you portray. Like, I could to- totally visualise that on the screen, and I'm guessing that's where your screenwriting work comes into play as well, right? Yeah, well, your storytelling side comes mm. into play. Whether you're working in movies or that, you have, in order to write it, you have to imagine it. To imagine it, it helps if you can see it. So you're quite right, Natalie. I mean, all of the characters, some of which are not even in the book, had whole backstories, but that allowed me by knowing them that well, to write the epilogue at the end, where I I buttoned, or I attempted to, I know people judge themselves, but attempted to button what happened to everybody, to give them a future. So, you know, when you're doing something like this, trying to be epic, you're trying to work in three different time frames. You're trying to work in the past. Where did they come from? Tell people enough about the past that they get an idea of their character. You're dealing with, hopefully, a very dramatic situation in the present that they've got a problem to deal with and their past might inform that. And then you're trying to throw the scene into the future. So it's no good, you know, like having everything resolved in the scene, you know, Kane comes in, has an argument with his partner, his romantic partner, Rebecca. It's no good saying, oh, well, you know, Rebecca's there, and 
very happy and, you know, they made love and everything was fine. What you want to do is you want to have go to bed and not talk to each other so that 20 pages later on, you can have them resolve this. You know, I, this is not in the book, but you have a say to him, um, do you not find me attractive anymore? And now you have a whole argument between these two people who've been together for quite a while, however you do it. So you're trying to work within those three timeframes, you know, the past, their backstory, the present dramatic situation, toss it into the future. And, you know, often you toss it into the future and there's nothing there. So you better go back and rewrite all that stuff, you know. So, yeah, there were backstories for characters that don't appear. There, there's, there's a submarine captain who... My God, uh, you know, he'll be in a novel one day and it's all written. Is He's that not... Martinez? Yeah. And he, he, I just borrowed his name. It bears nothing in relation to a guy trying to get the, through the ice pack at the, at the North Pole. But it, I will give him a new name. Somewhere it will turn up. There, look, there's a submarine pen in Norway, which is fantastic, where they have to land a helicopter coming through the blown-out roof after Barnes-Wallace, who invented the, the skipping bombs that blew up all the, the dam busters, blew up the German dams. He developed a thing called an earthquake bomb, which they managed to use against the Nazi submarine pens. Don't ask me about it because <laughs> I will tell you. And, and it's a fantastic action sequence. And, you know, if in, look, Raymond Chandler always said, if in doubt, have a blonde come through the room with a gun. And that's good advice for writers. My own advice is if in doubt, get the Nazis into it. So I've got this submarine pen that's been blown apart, but there on the wall are the names of all the Germans who helped build this this um, this submarine pen. And there's, you know, the swastika and the eagle and all that. I think, oh, this is great. I don't know what these Nazis are going to do, and they're all dead anyway, but at least I've got the Nazis into it. That all went. So, yeah, it's um, an interesting process. So let me put some pieces of the Terry Hayes jigsaw together from what you've told us, right? You started off as a journalist. I'm fairly certain I read somewhere that you had some involvement in covering some of the fallout from Watergate in your early part of your career. And then, you you know, your kids say, never play this guy at Trivial Pursuit. You're clearly deeply curious. But there's also a thing that other journalists who've become novelists have told us on this podcast, which is you can't just then show off what you know it's still got to be an entertaining and engaging story mm-hmm. so how have you found striking that balance how do you make sure because there's nothing even though this book's enormous nothing's wasted no no i, I, I try not to well you, you've got to have an emotional attachment to the characters and steven spielberg said an interesting thing many many years ago he said you know in good movies there are no bad people it's just people with a bad purpose. And so that became Saracen in Pilgrim. Mm. He wasn't a bad person. He wanted to do terrible things, yes, for reasons which I hope that we understood. So you've got to find an emotional attachment even to the bad guys, the other people with a bad function. Your hero will never be as good as they are. They have to be outstanding to warrant having a hero who can go head to head with them. So in order to tell the story, 
you have to give them the dignity of intelligence. You have to allow them to think. And I think in Locus, there is one really good moment um, where, and it wasn't by Cain, our hero, but somebody is listening to people talking in a four-wheel drive in a rack. And this a CIA analyst identified that the, the vehicle was heavily armed because of how its tyres were sinking into the sand, that a normal four-wheel drive Toyota would have ridden at certain height. This was riding lower because of the weight of the arm. And it was battered. It wasn't like you could see that it was armed. And so he deduced from that that this was carrying high-value targets. So that enabled the CIA to focus in on that vehicle. But they couldn't get a voice grab. They couldn't do the voice identification, which is what they do all the time. So he couldn't do that. But it was Kane who came up and said, we can track that vehicle. We can track it. We can find everywhere it's went. They said, no, we can't. We can't identify anybody speaking into it. And he said, no, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't try to identify the people speaking. Identify the sound of the engine. It will be unique because that car weighs three times what a normal Toyota would be. I thought it was clever. Uh, I don't think I was particularly clever. I do think the character was clever. Now you're sort of cooking, you know. If he's that smart, now we've got to make sure the bad guy's even smarter because otherwise there's no contest. So that's where you sort of, that's where I start. I start with with respecting them. I, I don't want to write about anybody who, who who's a psychopath and, and and wants to just go and destroy the world. He's got to have a reason. Well, in Pilgrim, it was pretty good reason seeing your father beheaded in a square in general terms it was. In this one, you know, it, the the mining for mammoth tusks for Christ's sake in Siberia. Now this is not normal. I don't care what anybody says. I didn't know anybody in Australia that was digging up mammoth tusks because the ivory was so valuable. But his, his father's murdered. And, you know, I guess that affected him. And he goes on this journey and uh, and what have you. And um, it, it becomes characters that live for you. you know? So if you can get into that position, they start to tell you a bit what what they want to do. It becomes a little bit easier. I think uh, we'll get you to read a bit in a secondary, but just on that point as well, I think the emotional intelligence of your characters and the empathy that you then get as a reader through learning about them is what propels the story so much. So again, I don't want to spoil it for people, but you use some scenes to just show that so, so, so well. So I'm thinking of there's a scene where our hero is looking like things are going to go south pretty soon, uh, strapped to a post in the water. Um, And our bad guy, Kaczynski, they have a moment where they lock eyes. And that scene really stayed with me, the the proper kind of like 
soul searching, looking at somebody and trying to figure out what they're doing. And yeah, yeah, I love that scene. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, like, um, yeah, there was a recognition between the two of them and uh, without giving spoilers away, but several hundred, maybe 400 pages later, I don't know, they meet again mm. face to face. And Kaczynski looks at him and says, you, yeah. like, you again. And that, um, and Kaczynski says to Kane at one stage, Kane has been revealed as a CIA agent, which I don't think we're giving anything away here. He reveals certain other things about himself that he can speak Russian and all this. And Kaczynski says, what's the next surprise? I'll tell you this, I'm getting sick to death of you. Um, and, uh, you know, Kaczynski's going to kill him. Of course he's going to have that lightness about him. And, I, I don't like books where Kaczynski walks around holding an axe, carrying somebody's beheaded, you know, skull or whatever. No. Um, so, yeah, you have to try to to, to motivate them. And, yeah, you know, it, 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 can't, it becomes hard. But if you can add in all the details about all of your characters, then you get to the point where at the epilogue at the end, you can say to the audience, well, you were vested in these people for 600 or 700 pages. This is what happened to them. And some of the things were good. And uh, I like it says at the end, you know, we're just riders on the storm. That's all we are. <laughs> can ever hope to be riders on the storm. So would you like to read a little bit for us so that people can get a sense of the words on the page? Sure. Will I read the opening to it? I can almost, I don't, don't need to read it. I can almost recite it off by heart. It was rewritten so many times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to win an Oscar. Okay. So be kind to the people that are listening to this. I'm a writer. I'm not an actor. Um, I once went to kill a man. At other times, in younger days, I had followed my work through the neon-lit alleys of Tokyo, watched the sun rise over the mosque of the Nine Cupolas and waited on the waterfront in old Istanbul as a woman's tears fell like rain. This time it was way out east where the Aegean Sea runs into the Mediterranean and the Turkish sun beats down on a chain of tiny islands. The smallest of them was also the most remote, Waves broke over the wreck of a freighter lying on the reef. Dangerous currents swirled through hidden coves and a fishing village, its wooden boats long gone, was nothing but ruins now. I landed in late spring, put ashore by the Egyptian skipper of a tramp steamer who was wise enough not to ask many questions. I can still recall the breeze on my face and the heady scent of pine needles as I moved through a silent forest, as I have done for most of my working life. I stuck close to the shadows. Nice. Very nicely done. Now, it's interesting what you said before you started the reading, because um, for reasons that will become clear in a second, the audio book is not done by you. Right? It's done by a guy called Jeff Harding. Mm-hmm. And I, in order to try and get this done in time for this interview, I was splitting my time between reading the physical oh, book my. and then listening to the audio book. So if I was in the car, the audio book would go on for, say, the yeah. length of the journey, and then I'd note where I was on the phone, go back to the hard copy, and then... Yeah carry on reading right so i had a good mix of both but the guy who's done you have you heard the audiobook no so he acts it out man he does he acts it out for you and he does the voices as well no, and I, can't. I couldn't bear it. 
I, I couldn't bear to listen to the words. <laughs> now I will listen to it. Don't tell him I haven't listened to it because I've been told he does a wonderful job. Oh, it, it's listening. Oh. It's really illuminating. Honestly, it's kind of yeah. like it's like listening to a one man show. Great. No, 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 it's no, look, it's offensive to him that I haven't listened to it. He came extremely highly recommended, but I I couldn't go through because I'm not not listening to what I wrote. I'm listening to what I should have written. Ah, okay. Now, is that uh, that in your personality, Terry? I mean, because you said the same thing about Pilgrim, and I, so I'm going to tell you, I just want to conclude the Pilgrim conversation. I didn't come to it under any kind of review pressure. As you know, I was gifted it by two authors. I read it on holiday. It's a 700 page book or something. I'd done it in five days. I'd never Mm -hmm. read a book so quickly. And I Mm -hmm. couldn't, and I was literally delaying going anywhere just so I could do an extra chapter. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was real genuine love there for that as a reader, not as any kind of book review or podcaster or anything. Right. Right. And, and David Nichols, who I don't know if you're familiar with, who wrote one day and um, he came on and said that he could always go back to any book of his and rewrite it. So at some point you have to go, right, the project is finished. Mm -hmm. Are you ever satisfied with your own work? No, no, no. Ever, whether it's a film, a book, never. No, I I mean, I have been contracted to write Pilgrim 2 and I have to do it. And there are a lot of time constraints. Otherwise I have to pay them a lot of money. Uh, And that's, so I'm dreading reading Pilgrim through, I am Pilgrim through again. I am. You know, look, Warren Beatty says it about movies. It's absolutely true. No movie's ever finished. There's just a point at which everybody agrees to give up. And I think that is true, at least as far as I'm concerned. No, I... I well, like the, choice, be... like the choice of your words there, that, that everyone gives up as opposed to just stopping. It's a very oh, yeah. different set of no, sentiment. Yeah. Yes, you know, finally, the book beats you. At least in my experience, so finally you wave the white flag and say you win, and <laughs> and that and that's it. Um, no, it, it's not a no. It's not a pleasant experience, but um, to 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 have to confront your own failures. And as I say, you know, I made mistakes. I I, I made a major mistake in in Pilgrim. I, I'm fully aware of it, and uh, I wish I had uh, not, but, but I did. The, the, for those that are wondering, the, um, see, I, I'm going to say it before you reveal it. I didn't spot it. No, I did not finish that book. Going, oh, that's a bit of a howler, but I'll I'll put it out of my mind. I finished no, that book. Going, no, oh my a, goodness, it's a narrative mistake. Right. He, the the story of the two girls, uh, as interesting as they are, does not quite dovetail as well as it should, in my view with the story of the hunt for the terrorists. And what he needed to do was in investigating the girls, he needed to unlock the key to something extremely important with the girl, with the terrorists. So you needed to, to realise that going on the journey of uncovering the subplot with the girls, it delivered something quite wonderful to him that kicked him into solving a problem with the with the terrorists and i realized that 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 was not correct after that that, that i could have done that better i'm not saying it's not correct i could have done it better and um that really really pissed me off but by Uh, by having a sequel that you contractually need to do can you not sort of fix that that demon that you're still thinking about in some way 
No, no, no. I wish I could. No, it'll have its own failures. <laughs> I don't need to deal with the with the earlier failure. <laughs> I, I'm sure I can invent a whole new uh, group of failures. So no, I'll, I'll I'll be wrestling them to the ground, and um, that's so. No, it, it, look, that that's just I, I, I'm relatively analytical. Mm. Uh, uh, which I think you have to be to, to write books like this. So I, I'm relatively analytical. And my wife says, and, I, and I, I think it's true, she says you do have that ability to look at things as if you didn't do them. And and that's true of the movies. Like, I, I mean, the kids have seen all the movies I've worked on, many movies that I'm not credited on. And I'll say to them, now that's wrong, or this scene should have really set up this for later. Now you find it irritating to watch movies with me, but um, <laughs> but no, I, I I do have that ability to to be you know self critical, and I you know uh, I figure if I can't be honest with myself, nobody else is going to be. So um, so yeah, I I would you know Jean Le Carre uh, uh, after the spy that came in from the cold was such a huge success. Many many years later, like the thirtieth fortieth anniversary, was invited by the publisher to to fix it, uh, to to do whatever he wanted to do after having become such an acclaimed author and. And, and learned so much, I guess. And Lacare said, no, I don't think I will. It exists for what it was with all of its battle scars intact. Uh, and I admired that. Uh, I, I did. I, I feel good on him. He knows. Yeah. He, he understands. If it's any consolation, uh, Terry, so Phil and I have had similar jobs over the years, but um, I've interviewed thousands of people who work in films and television and music and theatre. And I can honestly stay, say there is not one interview that I've done where I haven't hit stop and walked away where I thought, oh, yeah. shit, I should, yeah, have should have asked. There was one other thing. Like, there's yeah. honestly not one thing where I haven't thought, why didn't I say that? Or that, it kind of yeah. hits you a day later and you're like, ah. Yeah, yeah. Same thing used to happen to me before I was married. You'd meet somebody in a bar and you'd walk away and you'd think, why the hell did I say that? And that was the dumbest thing. Was I trying to be funny or was I just trying to prove that I'm stupid? Uh, and that, So I think it's really part of the human condition, you know, and that unfortunately when you write a book or make a movie or in, interview people or that, you, it lives with you longer. I mean, I, I spend most of my life trying to forget about people that I've met, but this exists, you know, interviews exist, the book exists, the movie exists, uh, uh, and that's so, yeah, it comes back to haunt, sure. Tell me um, the, the Hollywood screenwriting era of your life. Yeah. I read something online, and I want to know if it's true or not, that you said the moment you knew you had to leave Hollywood had to do with Jim Carrey and a camel. Oh, yeah, it did. That is true. That That, that is very true. Um, you know, Hollywood cycle, well, it was back then, uh, I mean, I saw the last, the 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 last hurrah of Hollywood Babylon, and I'm very pleased I did. Before it became very corporate, and everybody started to behave themselves. So you know, I saw a lot of the drugs and a lot of the girls and lots of that. I was 
in a committed relationship with my wife. So it was, well, she wasn't my wife then, but she became my wife. And so it was just a very interesting period. Okay. So Nicole Kidman had done a number of projects with me and we're very good friends. And uh, then she married Tom Cruise. So um, I was living in Hollywood and she was living in Hollywood. And I got invited to one of the great, a-list parties of Hollywood, you know, and I, I'd had some success as a film producer and a screenwriter, so it wasn't like I didn't belong or that I had, you know, um, hadn't experienced many of these things before, you know, sliced alone, walked me around his house and showed me his paintings on Arnold and done this and Jack and Warren. Well, so I wasn't like, you know, starstruck. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we arrived at the house and a magnificent house up a long drive, very long driveway. So you park your car and that in itself is a confronting experience because, you know, the valets park the car and so you don't want to turn up in a Volkswagen, do you? You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody will know that you're nobody. So you have to arrive in, in something that at least looks at least halfway decent. So, you know, you get through that, you give them your car keys and you hope they're not laughing too loudly then you walk up to where the camels are waiting you know and you think it's interesting normally in beverly hills we don't have many bedouin tribesmen but apparently tonight there are so we get on the we get on our camels because we have to go by camel up the driveway all right now i've ridden camels before because I'd been in Egypt, I'd been lots of places, and uh, before I know this is not something to be taken lightly. And my wife is quite a fine horsewoman, so she also knew how to sit saddle. So we're going on our camels, and I think, oh, my God. And the theme of the party is Bedouin nights or something. They have magnificent Bedouin tents set up all in the grounds of the estate and we're eating Moroccan food and doing all that. That was the idea. But we have to arrive by camel. So it just so happened in front of us at the very height of his fame was Jim Carrey. And Jim Carrey is a very, very good actor. I, I mean, he has done some dramatic uh, acting, not just comedic stuff. He's very, very good actor. Well, I saw this absolute, the most eloquent fashion you can imagine this night because Jim Carrey was on the camel in front of us. Now, you've got to remember, the camels are not moving because the camel herder, whatever he is, the camel wrangler, hasn't got everybody on board their camels. And this takes some pro- some time to do this. So Jim Carrey is in front of us. But it's not Jim Carrey in front of us. It's Lawrence of Arabia. Because Jim Carrey is whipping his camel without it moving and without it striking with his make-believe camel-riding stick to get across the Nefu Desert as fast as possible. And he's got his head thrown back and the wind blowing and all of this, and you could almost feel the sun beating down. And here he is, Laurence, Laurence, riding towards salvation and water. Well, my wife, I killed himself laughing. It was one of the best performances I've ever seen. It was truly outstanding. We go up to the party and all the great and famous are there. And, and you know, Tom and Nicole uh, at that time seemed to have a wonderful marriage and they were great hosts. They, they did a wonderful thing for me. And my parents arrived to visit me. They invited myself and my parents around and gave us the most magnificent dinner, just us and them. And um, 
you know, that's quite something for an English migrant family yeah, to, to, to be seen there. And they, they are the most wonderful hosts. And both of them, you know, are, are truly, truly fine people. And um, anyway, we left the Bedouin party and we're waiting for our car. And Kristen said to me, well, what do you think? I said, well, that's Hollywood, huh? That's really something. And she said, did you like it? I said, I really don't think that's the question. I, I said, I'll just tell you this, I don't belong. And she said, God, what do we She said, mm-hmm. nah, we moved to New York a short time later. And uh, if you want to hear the rest of the story, Tommy Matola, who's the head of Sony Music at Merrick Mariah Carey. And as some people may know, she's a bit of a diva. Uh, by the way, I, I tend to think of diva as just a different way to say trailblazer, depending well, on... No, no, no. It's a different way of saying difficult. <laughs> Extraordinarily <laughs> difficult. So Matola had lived in this six-storey townhouse on the Upper East Side, but she didn't want to... The floor-to-ceiling height in the living room was 42 feet and uh, looked out on the garden at the back. So you've got a garden in Manhattan. Wow. And that's the reason. So she didn't want to live there. So he wanted to rent it. So we arrived. And the movies were doing really well, really well. So Kristen and myself and the two dogs moved into this place. And um, we brought up my furniture over. We, I had a lot of furniture. And... It was pretty spectacular, I will say that. I can say this because many years ago and I lead a much different life now. And uh, that we're there two days and Kristen came home and she said, I'd lived in New York before. She'd visited, but she never lived there. I'd lived there as a young journalist. And uh, she came home, she looked at me and said, I hate this city. I hate it. I said, why? She said, people are rude. The supermarkets are terrible. Can't even get your basket down them. She said, there's dirt everywhere. It's cold. Why would you ever suggest that we live here? So I said, oh, I don't know. I thought it was a good idea. And we're living in very nice circumstances. She said something very rude about circumstances. And she said, have you ever been to Florida? I said, yeah, I've been to Miami, been to Cape Kennedy Space Center, as it's known now. She said, have you ever been to Palm Beach? I said, no. I said, have you? And she said, no, but my friends went there for a wedding and they said, it's very nice. So she said, I think we should book some flights. It's February, New York. It's a little cold. People are living bloody igloos on Madison <laughs> Avenue, I'm sure of it. And, that, and so she said, I think we should go to Florida for, for get away from the cold and we'll go down there. And so we did. So we bought a house about, Oh, I don't know, half a mile down the road from where Donald Trump's place is, Mar-a-Lago, and that. And so it all started, we no longer own house we sold many years ago, but um, that was how, it was, I can't watch Jim Carrey without seeing what an effect he had on my life, without him ever knowing this. It was Jim Carrey that made us leave Los Angeles, or at least, that night, I thought, no, nah, this is not me. Go to New York, live in Mariah Carey's house, move to Palm Beach. And I'm, I said to her after quite a few months, 
you know, by about 30 years, we're the youngest people in, in Florida. We are. Everybody else is 90, pushing on to 100. And that went to live in London. And uh, that, so we've never stopped. It's so been... were you happy in London? Was London good? Yeah, traffic's not so good. <laughs> you just have to walk yeah, everywhere in London. So. Yes, yeah, well, we did. And, and so it becomes a restricted city. Uh, I, Do you know I mean, what, though? The irony is if you had a camel in London, you'd have flown oh, through. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> People would have respected me. No, no, we, look, we've had a great time wherever we've lived. Yeah. Can I ask you um, about some of the films that you worked on and yes. your treatment in story terms, of animals, particularly in two of them. Mm. So I don't know if this is relating to you in so Cliffhanger. For anybody yeah. who's seen Cliffhanger, there's a famous scene where you think that some bunny rabbits are going to get shot and then they don't. Yes. But then in Dead Calm... Oh, the dog. Yeah, the dog! Oh, the the dog. dog in Dead Calm. I so w- were you responsible for both those things or just yeah. the dog, Terry? No, no, just the dog. I just think dog. in all fairness. I think somebody else came up with the bunny rabbit scene. Um, but the, in, in, in Road Warrior, he's got a dog, mm-hmm. uh, which had the very creative name of Dog. Because Mel pointed out that he was not the sort of character that would name a dog. So it's known as Dog. Now, we had a real problem with that dog uh, because um, the R- we got him from a rescue dog. And the RSPCA in Australia will not release uh, rescue dogs unless they ha- have been castrated. Well, as somebody pointed out, you're not going to go wasteland in a post-apocalyptic world with a castrated dog. Uh, you know, I, I, let's get real here. Uh, and nobody will notice and there were some, some of the folks and, uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. So we had to plead with the RSPCA not that we would bring the dog back after filming if we could use it. So Max Aspen, who is the animal trainer, uh, um, uh, promised that the dog would be obedient and do everything as ordered. Uh, intelligent dog, lovely dog, uh, Australian blue healer, great dog. And that, so anyway, we get to sit the first day and yada, 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 uh, doing some scenes. I spoke to Mel just after lunch. He had a break and I, I, I said, how are you getting on? He said, I, I'm going to insert a small piece of lead in the left ear of the dog. I said, well, why would you do that? He said, I would make him more obedient. I said, oh, does that work, does it? He said, yes, when it's inserted with a 38 Magnum, it generally <laughs> works. Uh, I said, oh, my God. He said, that dog's completely untrained. That dog is completely... So I went over to Max. I said, Mel's saying the dog's... He said, oh, look, it's the first day. You know, he's nervous. <laughs> that dog was absolutely untrained. So basically, were you, were you getting your, your own back then with what you did to the dog in Dead Calm? Well, we, you know, the thing about making movies is, you know, you'll do anything if you think it's going to work. And you have to have that frame of mind. Now, I love dogs, you know. It's that old thing, you know, more I see people, the better I like dogs. And, that, and uh, I, I love dogs. We've, all, we've had Scottish Terriers for all of our relationship to get 30 years. And... Uh, the present Scottish Terrier is called Dashiell after Dash Hammond, quite a writer, tragic story to his life. But Dashiell is uh, is my literary companion, and uh, that so we I love dogs. But when you make a movie and you get a moment 
to kill a dog with a crossbow and it is pinned to the other side of the door and you open the door and you see your dog uh, <laughs> you sort of think wow morally it's not right of course it's no. not it's morally completely wrong on the other hand this is going to make them sit up and look. So, and you, know, you remember it however many years later uh, since yeah, I saw that film. So you think, oh, it's not a real dog and, uh, and, and what have you. And uh, that's so, yeah, I'm the idiot that stops on the, and this happens, stops on the highway and gets all the traffic to stop because there's a dog running loose on the highway, you know, and that's so, no, it, that was, you know, where art meets life and sorry. Uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> now I know Natalie's really keen to do like a spoiler section with you, so I'll, I'm going to do one more question where yeah, sure. it doesn't matter if you haven't done a spoiler, and then the rest. Um, I'm directing this more to you listening than to Terry, but the rest you might want to just kind of pause and come back to. Or we might even chop it and put it as a separate bit, might we? Yeah. And then then it goes out with a separate warning on it, so that people can come to it after they've read Locust. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll do that. Um, I wanted to ask you, one of the things that you've, you've talked about character development, one of the things I really loved in Locust is this character, I think it's Yusuf Fahiz, who funds terror organisations, yes. used to be a cricketer, right? Yes. Loved for his cricketing abilities in his country. And I yes. thought, wow, have you heard from Imran Khan's lawyers? And well, now look, God almighty, you read carefully. There was, <laughs> there was another three paragraphs about him. And Larry Finlay who is the head of Transworld, about to retire, sent a message saying, I think it's too close to Imran Khan because I had this cricketer winning a test against India and he carried his bat from first ball to last. Oh, fantastic. And uh, I, I said to to Bill Scott Carr, who's the publisher and editor at Transwell, I said, it's my job in life to popularise cricket. And because in Pilgrim, there's some Australian who's, who's flying a plane who starts going on about Bradman and that. and that. So here, I thought, oh, I've got this Pakistani, so he might as well be a famous guy and do all of this. And uh, they said, no, no, no. It, 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 you're the cricketing side, or not, not can't ever done anything like this, but uh, the cricketing side, you've just obviously drew it from Imran Khan. And that was, you know, I, I mean, I know a lot about Pakistani cricketers, but of course he's the go-to guy in many ways in your imagination. My kids, my two boys are very fine cricketers, uh, not in Portugal anymore, but they were in Australia, but played representative cricket at a young age and they were very, very good. Their cricketing coach was a guy called Pecky. And Pecky tells this story, which is fantastic, of how he's playing first grade cricket and playing up to a higher level, uh, you know, the, the Australian under-19 team, many, many different things, great cricketers. He's playing first-grade cricketer, and this Pakistani guy arrives to to join their team because you're allowed to do that, you know. Some of the English guys come out Pakistanis and that. And so he says to this guy, what are you doing for Christmas? And Imran Khan says, well, not much because you know, he's of the Islamic faith and that. And so Pekki says, come out to my place. Come out to my parents' place. It's nothing religious. We just have a big feast. 
and that, and my parents would love to see you, and you know nobody in Australia. And Peggy knew what a great cricketer he was going to be, and, and that, and you know, this very Australian this story. So even that comes, oh, you're all right. And so Peggy says, I'll pick you up early on, you know, Christmas Day, and we'll drive to my parents' place. Well, his parents' place, like. 500 miles away, something ridiculous. And Imran Khan is sitting there and I'm driving across this endless Australian landscape. And they come to the town where Pecky's family lives. And Imran Khan sits a bolt upright and says, Stop, stop. And Pecky says, Why? He says, Stop, we have to take a photo. Pecky says, Yeah. Well, the town is where Don Bradman grew not Barrel, is where he was born. Imran Khan had recognised this and he got out and posed next to the site of Bradman's birth. So there you have the great, in my view, the greatest Pakistani cricketer, or certainly one of the great Pakistani mm. cricketers, posing next to this sign where the greatest Australian cricketer lived. Peggy took the photo. They drove off. They had the most wonderful Christmas lunch. And that and Imran Khan never forgot it. He's always, I think, had a great affection for Australia because the friendship that was shown. I get to write a book. I'm sitting there thinking about Pakistani cricketers. I'm thinking of my kids practicing in the nets. And Pecky's saying, No, watch the ball. Watch the ball off to the net. And I'm thinking about Imran Khan. It all comes out in the novel. So, yeah, it's. Uh, it was an, an interesting character. It goes back to what Natalie was saying. They've all got to have a backstory. Everybody's got to, you've got to know them. How can you write them if you don't know them? Right, before we go, let's get some recommendations from you, Terry. What else have you been reading? Oh, I, I haven't been reading very much. I've been, well, I've been reading Le Carre again because I'm preparing myself to write Pilgrim 2. So I might as well see how high the bar really is. Uh, I have on my bedside, broadly speaking, the Stuart Broad. Uh, Broad yeah. uh, okay. Because, you know, well, he's a nemesis. Uh, I'm not reading it because I like him. You know, right. I mean, we had to go, you know, to various ashes and boo him for right. the echo. You know, right. we're in Australia, I wouldn't do that. Although I think we I, feel the same about Davey Warner. Oh, oh, we do too, actually. Oh, really? Uh, no, myself and family decided to support New Zealand after those idiots were caught cheating in South Africa. Right. I said to them, I said, the great thing about cricket is the morality it teaches you. Well, that, we didn't get the message in Australia. So we now support, <laughs> we now support New Zealand and that. And uh, no, we, but, you know, various ashes over the years, we've had to go along with boost your abroad. My 18-year-old son, uh, his great ambition is to join the Barmy Army because he thinks that's the funniest thing he's ever encountered. Uh, and that I can't stop him uh, because we can't, we can't support Australia while Smith and Warner and the rest of the gang are there. So, no, you know, I, well, you know, it's like I mean, cricket is... I do, but you're the first Aussie I've heard say that. They've, well, they've all stood by them. Oh, well. That's silly, isn't it? That's sort of yeah. like wrapping yourself in the flag and going killing people, you know. It, it, it sounds good on the day until you're in the trenches at the Somme, you know. And that, so, no, it, uh, no, it was wrong. There's no two ways about it. It was wrong. That dressing room in South Africa was a very small place. And what, suddenly the bowlers are saying, gee, this is a pretty warm ball. This might give us some reverse swing. It was no. I, I say to the boys, you know, the reason they learned cricket was 
to learn about life. Yes, I agree. You can't, you can't teach them about life that it's cheating. You have to take a stand. So we took a stand. So go New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, now, you know, I just normally, when we have a guest who's been so illuminating, we say that we'd like to go to the pub with them. I just want to go to day three at Lords with you. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, no, I mean, it's the love of the game, you know. I, I, uh, my son, my wife, as I mentioned, is American. She loves cricket. We all, all the girls and uh, uh, they could take it or leave it, but no, it's the love of the game. When you when you see a, a bowler like Stuart Broad or Jimmy Anderson, you, you take your hat off to it. You know, you know those guys that could have written seven hundred page epic books. They are they've got some sort of determination. So oh, was yeah. that Old Trafford Terry when Shane Warne bowled Gatting? You know oh, the ball of the century, oh, the ball and I was—we were behind the bowler's arm because one of my mates at uni had done work experience at Lanx cricket, and so oh, we yeah. got these seats from the club, and we watched this ball pitch on leg and hit off, and no wow. one—we didn't even think it was out because we thought, well, something's gone wrong there. Wrong, yeah. yeah. We just couldn't yeah. believe we were so mesmerised by what we saw. Yeah. Oh, uh, what a ball! But Alan Border, the Australian captain at the time, who went to the same school that I went with and was captain of our cricket team. So the cricket team did quite well. Um, Alan Border didn't realise what had happened. He was like you. It was like, what? what yeah. is going on? Couldn't fathom it. And that, no. So, yeah, and then, of course, Warney dies. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, you see, Phil will go and have go watch cricket with you, and I'll just come over to Lisbon and have some of those really nice cherry liqueur shots around the oh, city. Oh, well, there you go. So yeah. clearly, an, <laughs> clearly an alcoholic. I thought yeah. you were going to say pastel de nata. Yeah, I'll have that, but uh, with the little cherry liqueur <laughs> thing. Uh, lucky you. <laughs> oh, Terry, listen, thanks so much for speaking to thank us, being you. so generous with your time. And um, when you do tackle Pilgrim 2, please don't lose sight of the huge amount of immense pleasure you've brought all your readers. Don't be too hard on yourself, man. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, and it won't take nine years, I promise you. <laughs> Lovely talking to you. Thank you. Too. you. Take thank care, you. buddy. Thanks, thanks so much. Bye. 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 <laughs> So many nuggets in there. I loved chatting cricket with him. I loved his insight into the fact that nothing's wasted. So even if he, you know, he submits all these millions of words, but even if they don't all make the final cut, they'll make the next book or what have you. But the thing I love most about him, which made him real to me, was the fact that he's in the middle of this wild party with Jim Carrey on a camel. And a great story. And that it was a great story, wasn't it? And that's the moment he decides that Hollywood's not for him. So whereas I think <laughs> I even think, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I I, I think you and I are quite similar in that we'd be like lapping. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'd be like, I want more of this. This is crazy. And this only happens once in your life. I want more of it. And that was the moment he went, nah, not normal enough for me. I'm off. <laughs> and I really admired him for that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh it was just fascinating. But also I think. You know, I think he's obviously very good at his job, but there's a degree of security in his lifestyle that's allowed him to be able to be quite indulgent with his words and say, it's fine, I can write this this amount of words. And I know mm. that it's not all going to be wasted, whereas mm. people like like you and I, who are <laughs> hoping to be published authors one day, it's quite a struggle to kind of get mm. through all the words and when you're not being paid for it and carving out that time amongst everything else. So, um, yeah. 
not putting Terry Hayes down at all. I'm just saying there are obviously different ways that people cope no, no, with no. how much you know, they write. Um, do you know how a friend recently, and I meant to tell you this, not on the podcast, but we're on it now. Um, he crystallised that situation you just described. Yeah. He said it's the difference between earning money and making money. Mm-hmm. So if you're under pressure to earn money, if you have to go out and get a job that requires someone to pay you, that's one pressure. And what the other, the flip side of the coin is, is making money, which is where you metaphorically give birth to something that you've created that will then hopefully make money. And then this, this phrase, passive income streams, that I keep hearing, where you can make money in your sleep. So you've written a book. Someone on the other side of the world could be buying your book while you're asleep. Yeah. I was like, how does that work? What's happening when I'm yeah. asleep? T-shirts, <laughs> merch is a popular yeah. one. You know, things that just sit on a website that just order automated by kerching, kerching, and you're asleep. Yeah. I mean, that is why they say, right, anybody who's in the creative industries that you have to, whatever you're creating, whether you're writing a song or a play or a book or a film, you have to make it the the thing that you want to create because ideally it's going to stick around for a while and keep mm -hmm. generating that mm -hmm. stuff for you. Um, exactly. Easier said than done, though, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and you know, Terry's <laughs> obviously got that huge screenwriting background to his armory, which which helps out. And mm. um, I'm looking forward to Pilgrim 2 now as well, after what he said about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think, again, I got the impression, did you, that I got the impression he was slightly daunted by having to write that. He kept using the phrase contractually, which made me think, does he not want to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I think that's probably that difference, right? Where if you've got something that you just want to write. Yeah, true as opposed to somebody telling you you've got to write something and you've signed a contract to say, yes, you will, that alters how you approach it, I'm sure. Talking of which, uh, if you'd like to help us to make a few quid or earn a few quid, no, definitely make, then you can find us at this site called Kofi that we've probably rattled your cage about before. It's ko-fi.com slash podcast, all one word. So Kofi, ko-fi.com slash podcast, And you can buy us both a metaphorical coffee on there. So you don't have to put the full cost of a coffee. Uh, if you're struggling, it can just be like a quid here, a quid there. But it helps us because we any money we get from there, we plow straight back into the costs associated with making this podcast, such as the cost of the editing software and the cost of the Zooms that we interview the authors on and what have you. So if you can help us, if you like what we're doing, you want us to do a season six and a season seven. And I mean, I've certainly got aspirations to get to at least 10 before we die. <laughs> then... Uh... <laughs> Okay, then that's that a, that's a really cheery thought as we head into 2024. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The clock's ticking, baby. We need your money before we cark it. <laughs> I just like to think, you know, we'll keep reading books, talking to authors in perpetuity. It'll be lovely. It, by the way, if you see the words in perpetuity in any contract you're about to sign, don't sign it. <laughs> as Linda LaPlante told us on this podcast. Yeah. Right, we are going to catch you next in 2024 and it won't be long into 2024 but don't ask us for specifics because we just don't know what we're doing for new year's eve yet never mind next year